Wakanda Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Conda. All right, we are on. And so um, we are back. And my name is Conda Mason, and I am happily here to bring another edition of the Brown Rice Hour. And at the Brown Rice Hour, I have conversations with um, some pretty amazing people um, at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. And so it could be a conversation in any one of those areas or a combination of the two or three or five. And so that's what we do here on the Brown Rice Hour. And uh, today my guest is Larry Yang, who um, you'll get to know more about him, those of you who are not familiar with Larry. And I just want to first of all say thank you, Larry, for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Conda. Yes, 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 it's yes. A pleasure. And so um, I always begin, uh, Larry, with opening up a little bit of sacred space. And so I like to begin with land acknowledgement. Um, and um, I see you kind of have your land. Can you tell us where you're, where you're calling in from and a little bit of land acknowledgement? Um, I am on the Kohia land um, uh, from the Agua Caliente tribe in Palm Springs, California, in Southern California. And um, uh, I've been here uh, full-time for about two years now. Yeah. Oh, right. So Agua Caliente is the name of the actual tribe. Correct. Wow, I didn't realize that. Cool. I am um, calling in from the land of um, quite a few different tribes, the Chiri-Maka tribe, the Kushata tribe, and the Choctaw as well as the Tunica Biloxi tribe. And uh, the land now is called uh, Louisiana, Alexandria, Louisiana mm -hmm. is where I am calling in from. So just honoring the folks whose land we are settled on and have settled on. Um, and that's an important part of opening up our sacred space by being honest about that, you know, and acknowledging and honoring that. And then also, I always like to honor um, Larry, our ancestors, and um, whose love and resiliency is how and why I'm here today. And um, the ancestors who have um, given so much to, um, to make this time possible for all of us. And so I like to honor your ancestors as well. Mm. And, um, and also, I look at the work that we are called to do now and giving thanks for the work that we are all called to do at this point in time. I think we're listening, hopefully, to the ancestors whispering in our ears and and then those who come after us, right, um, that we may be good ancestors and leave a world that is um, better than the world that we received. And so all of that is in context to um, to our time together land, race, money, and spirit, and culture. Um, all right. So um, I'm going to introduce Larry, 
right now. And um, he describes his work. Uh, when asked to describe your work, Larry, he said that uh, the ever-changing journey to search for meaning and worthiness in this life. And I love that you said that. I thought, all right, we're going to get into that. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about that. And um, but let me first give a bio on Larry and who this man is, and and then and 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 I also want to stress just how important Larry has been in my life, um, so much, so important to me. So he's a senior advisor in mindfulness and healing justice for the Katali Foundation, um, who provides grants to support community-based mindfulness and awareness practices for diverse multicultural communities and organizations. And for 20 years, Larry has taught meditation retreats nationally, has a special interest in creating access to both Buddhism and secular mindfulness to non-dominant cultures. And he has practiced meditation for 30 years um, with extensive time in Burma and Thailand and a six month period of ordination as a Buddhist monastic um, he is, Larry is one of the founding teachers of both um, East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, which I am too a part of, and the Insight Community of the Desert in Palm Springs, where he is located at this moment, and was also on the Teachers Council of Spirit Rock Meditation Center for 10 years. And I have to say one of the main teachers, one of the most incredible teachers there at Spirit Rock for many years. He's trained teachers for spiritual leadership within communities of color and the LGBTQI communities for 15 years. And Larry ha was honored for his work in racial justice by being selected as the community's choice for Grand Marshal in the 2016 San Francisco LGBTQI Pride Parade, whose theme that year was for racial and economic justice. Larry has written an incredible book called Awakening Together, The Spiritual Practice of Inclusivity and Community that was published by Wisdom Publications. And his website is www.larryyang.org. He also says that in previous lives, Larry has been a national park ranger, which I did not know, a graphic designer, I knew that, a psychotherapist, public health social worker, and diversity consultant. So a little bit more about Larry is that um, I would have to say that my spiritual path that uh, in the Theravada tradition and in mindfulness has been really guided by Larry. And had Larry not been who he is and was and has been in my life, I doubt if I'd be on this conversation right now. Honestly, Larry, you have been my teacher, my mentor, my friend, and, um, and has kicked me in the, in the butt when I was uh, taking too long to make decisions around my own path. <laughs> Those phone calls, I would just, <laughs> like, are you going to do this or not? You remember that, right? Yes, oh, God, of I remember course. that. <laughs> like, and you have brought so many through the portal. But you have to mention our uh astrological siblinghood okay, that's right that's right so then astrologically larry and i are born like a few hours apart correct um larry is a few hours older than me so he's the elder but we were born the same just about the same day a few hours apart of the same year and that's uh february 27th february 28th 
So yeah, so there's that connection as well. So Larry, before we get into all the stuff that I really want to talk about, I want to talk about this too. I always start my uh, this broadcast um, asking a question that um, that to me gets to a lot of different places within somebody. It's a simple question. And I am um, a big foodie for one thing, okay? And brown rice hour is named brown rice hour for a reason. It's, a, it's an important aspect of my life, the brown rice and the role it has played in my life as I changed my diet and became microbiotic and all those kinds of things. And so um, I'm always curious about food. And so my question to you to begin with is, what was the food or the dish or something that you ate as a child that was your comfort food and who prepared it? Well, of course my mother prepared it. Um, (laughs) And I will start with a preparer first because Um, my mother, even though she, um, she graduated from high school, even though she didn't come, she didn't go through it in, cause she was taken out of it for a number of months or years, but she did complete it. Uh-huh. Um, and, but she didn't have any formal degree after that. She should have been a chemist because I would, whenever we went to a restaurant, it didn't matter if it was a Chinese restaurant a uh, American restaurant, a California cuisine restaurant, I would always rag her by saying, mom, stop playing with your food. (laughs) And she would look at me and she would say, do you want this at home or not? (laughs) And, (laughs) And sure enough, whether it was, um, whether it was fried chicken, coco vin, or shoe fly pie, or anything, she would be able to replicate it um, <sighs> over several iterations. But she would be able to figure out how to create that dish, and um, and so there's a lot of comfort in her food. <sighs> rather than a specific comfort uh, mm-hmm. recipe mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and and you know i went into this a little bit in another conversation that uh and i think this is common not i don't want to generalize but but certainly it was in my family that that culturally um it's not necessarily what you said so the the traditional parental guidance of always offering love to your kids and, and, and I love you and unconditionally they tried, but they, that is not what they did in terms of their parental skills. What they did was they showed us how they loved Mm. us. Mm. It was the behavior. It was, it was always creating that, that, um, dinner table covered with things you could not not eat you know that (laughs) that that you just dove into the dinner table and that was the experience of family wow and um and that took a lot of effort it took a a lot lot of effort and it was just the different chinese dishes primarily is that the cuisine was she made the best fried chicken i have ever tasted (laughs) 
Wow. Wow. And her okay. chili, her chili, she, I don't know. I seem to have this memory. I can't, I can't validate it anymore because she's no longer here, but, uh, I think she put coffee in her chili. <laughs> Ground up coffee? Yes, and it was no. delicious. Wait, wait, why do you think that? It tasted like coffee? I just seem to remember, <laughs> and maybe this is my own mythology, but she liked her chili hot because... You know, red pepper is a big thing in 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 Asian cooking, and mm -hmm. and somehow the coffee cut it, but didn't interfere with, you know, the I don't know, I don't know, I haven't, I I I don't have that particular recipe, but anyway. Oh my God! So she was quite the cook. I you know when and I'm she, speaking that, of food, and yeah, that I, means the there's creativity, of course, yeah, yeah. in in the dish. So. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and 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 where did you grow up with your with your parents? Uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia in right. one of those uh, Levittowns. The mm -hmm. um, you know the folk singer Pete Seeger used to uh, write about the ticky tacky boxes of the emerging post World War II um, <sighs> suburban developments, and yeah. they are actually beautiful places to live for now, but. Back then, it was um, uh, you know, sort of lower income, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, uh, easily replicated uh, homes. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they arrived in Philadelphia. Uh, and the reason that they lived there is because nobody would rent or sell to them in Philadelphia because they were an Asian immigrant family. So they had to go outside of Philadelphia and um wow and so and yeah. you were first born first generation born in this country yes in your family and so so your parents since we're talking about this a little bit more I'd like to like as immigrants coming over what was that experience like and I'm I'm really curious if you know looking at the immigrant experience today in, in, yes. in America like how it compares but what do you know about that experience that they had well, gosh, you're going to go into territory that is so current for me and alive for me right now for so many reasons, including yeah. what's happening out in the world, That's right. uh, including the fact that my parents lived in, lived in Atlanta for 10 years. Um, but um, so my mom passed from COVID last August at the age of 104. Yeah. And... Um, uh, I I will say that you know um, I am semi facetious in saying that it took a global pandemic to bring her down because she is was one strong force that um, yeah. that um, supported her through this whole process of mm -hmm. you know uh, immigrating and and uh, developing more than just a, a life of survival, but a life that yeah. created something pretty amazing for yeah. all of us. So when she passed away, I was going through all my parents' paperwork because I didn't want to throw it away when um, she was alive. Mm 
And your dad had passed already, right? Your dad About 10 years ago. 10 years and, ago. Mm-hmm. And I found that being the obsessive parents uh, who have um, um, raised this obsessive person <laughs> speaking in front of you, um, they had collected all their paperwork from the um, quote unquote, the ticket on the slow boat from China, the freighter that, that she brought my brother on, the, the train ticket from San Francisco to Ohio, the, um, the letters of sponsorship that they got from anybody that they could connect with in the United States from the YMCA, the uh, student visas that my father um, had to go through when he was getting his um, uh, graduate degree through this piece of paper that was not even a full eight and a half by 11 that was from the State Department ordering their deportation in 1947 to Canada or their country of origin um, because this was happening all through the years of uh, the World War II and the ending of the World War II, knowing that the Chinese Exclusion Act had not been dismantled yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of the justification that he wrote after that order of deportation and just realizing that what we're going through today is not, you know, it's just another manifestation. That's right. And that I also have all of the documentation leading up to the 1959 through the Joseph McCarthy era, of course, Mm the the letter of congratulations from the US Congress in their naturalization and citizenship. And when I went through that, I breathed a sigh of relief because even though the oppression and the discrimination and the, um, uh, the hatefulness in the larger culture is still there, there is, that is the power of the, the immigrant experience is to create a life yeah. that is independent of the suffering. And that, it, that my parents' story, even though I tell it a little bit dramatically because it's, it, 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 it impacts me directly, their mm-hmm. story is not unique. Mm-hmm. And it really inspires me to um, pass this on, you know, pass this level of support that I can still feel them at my back, even though they're gone. Mm. And, and I'm, and I don't grieve that they're gone because Mm -hmm. what they created not only contributed to my well-being and my ability to do my life but they contributed to this country and this culture big time and and you know a drop in the bucket they did not pretend or want to be important people but a drop in the bucket how many drops in the bucket do we have 
-hmm. in this world mm -hmm. that can create this flood yeah. of, um, you know, both cleansing, healing, and, and just providing that foundation to go where our culture needs to go. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm looking at thinking about all of the horrible, horrible anti-Asian violence that's happening right now. That is just, ah, oh, it's so painful. It's so painful. And as a, as a, and as a black woman in America, it's like, I, I, you know, I can't stand it. And I'm wondering, first of all, your mom passed away before seeing and understanding any of this, that this was happening. Um, not that it hasn't happened all along. So what do you think of when you think about the violence, the anti-Asian sentiment and violence that's happening right now? How does that impact you? And how do you see it on a trajectory of being here in America? Uh, I will riff a little bit. There's a lot to say and I'll, sure. I'll riff both macro and maybe okay. micro. Um, so this history that I've learned or internalized from my parents' documents has given me the sense that history itself is a mindfulness practice. And history itself is a healing practice. If we can learn from <laughs> it, that history ha is a receptacle of resilience. Just knowing how resilient my parents are allows me access to coming back over and over again and not going into that hole of despair, which is... Um, uh, so seductive uh, in the moment and to look at the larger whole. So, um, you know, and so when I look at that history in beyond my family and I realize that part of the Chinese Exclusion Act was not just excluding, the, the first Exclusion Act uh, around the Page Act was to, to prevent any immigration of Chinese women during the years of the railroad construction. And so, um, and also to prevent uh, Chinese men from uh, interracially marrying with Caucasians. Right. So uh, it was a planned extinction, mm -hmm. so to speak. Right. Um, except uh, the, the intermarriage and the intermingling of Chinese and African-American communities and couples. And, um, uh, and that is what allowed the Asian experience to continue in, in the US. And I remember in the early uh, days of the 1960s movements, how, how um, much in solidarity Mm -hmm. Each of the affinity groups, each of the cultural um, aspects were. And it is in the nature of white supremacy and white-centered, you know, culture yeah. 
to fragment, to separate. That's right. And this is what we have to learn over and over again. That's right. That's right. Because I remember when when thinking about like the ethnic studies department, it was the ethnic studies departments in the '60s, where it was the Asian American, the the the, the Latino, uh, Latinx, and Black, all coming together to create and fight for ethnic studies department. And there was so much of that togetherness, and and yet, like you said, supremacy, white supremacy is is built on the concept of separation. And you know the 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 aspect of uh, divide and That's you right. know uh, being able to control. That's right. I try to internalize that learning when I forget, and that is the mindfulness practice because you 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 forget, and you get you get distracted. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And um. And so, I think also what um, mindfulness and the practice of concentration helps us in in this regard is to always remember what's important, what's in front of us, um, and that um, um, how do we keep our uh, energies together rather than... Mm-hmm going into our separate and and there are there are many reasons to gain safety and to gain momentum and to gain resilience by going into our most familiar safe communities mm-hmm. but there is also a reason to stretch beyond them to keep stretching beyond them over and over again um, to look at the larger picture of what is really causing the fragmentation yeah. You know, um, you have a way, Larry, of, of bringing things back to mindfulness in such a, uh, because it is the world. I mean, you, you, my lens that I get from you is that, that, that there's almost no place that mindfulness isn't. Um, depending on, 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 on your lens. And so I want to ask you about mindfulness and how, your journey getting there. How did you become, what, what brought you into mindfulness? What was your journey? Um, I, well, you know, when, uh, I'm not exactly sure the words I used when when you were opening my introduction about searching for a path, a journey. Right. Right. But I have always been um, curious about this life, and 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 often I didn't have enough information to even know what I was curious about. So, you know, when um, when when someone first um, uh, called me a racial epithet in elementary school, I didn't know what that was about, but I knew something was off. Something mm-hmm. was not, not um, um, something was not healthy. And mm-hmm. I, I got curious, well, what is that? You know, like, uh, and my mother, when I asked her, what does the word chink mean? And, mm. you know, I could see the look on her face 
and and um i and she was so pained that mm -hmm. i thought i did something to hurt her i didn't know enough she, so but i still was curious like what is this so there was some ability not to get lost in the pain itself and um so i i just kept being curious okay what is what is keeping me here what is you know i'm feeling very different especially as a a gay young boy who didn't know what gay or homosexual or even any of those terms meant uh, right. i just had different feelings but what is what were those feelings as i um, was growing up and um, and what would allow me to to relax into who I was I kept asking myself because none of the traditional mm -hmm. answers of going into the sciences or becoming you know a lawyer or going to an Ivy League school really landed for me it just caused me more angst because I couldn't do it. I went through, I don't know, eight different majors in the first two years of my college because I kept flunking out, you know, because I wasn't interested <laughs> until, <laughs> until I found the fine arts and I could explore um, um, that. So, but then I, hindsight, and this took me years of therapy to figure out, <laughs> is I used that art because I was feeling so oppressed as a, as a gay man of color. And I was really good at creating aesthetics, which is part and parcel of being a gay man, but still. <laughs> Let's not get stereotypical. But <laughs> okay. I was going to define the environment around you. I was going to create, because I felt so controlled, Right. I was going to I was going to create the space create. that that the dominant culture walked through and they were going to like it. Wow, interesting. Mm. That was the psychological <laughs> I didn't even realize that this was happening uh, because it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, you know, I got I could be pretty good at what I did. Mm -hmm. But it was number one, fleeting, and also, you know, yeah. the 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 control that I was seeking to impose was in my mind. It was a right. fantasy, right? And um, and so, so you know, I became really good at looking good at the outside and feeling horrible on the inside, mm. and so wow. that dissonance, you know. Um, created the conditions for a lot of substance abuse and, mm. and uh, despair and, mm. and um, uh, you know, when I went into recovery was when I deconstructed everything. It, and that's when I started to look at, you know, why do you want to make things look good? And, uh, oh, mm. so it, it does come from this cultural, mm -hmm. you know, experience uh, mm -hmm. that's so deeply embedded in terms of the self-worth. Mm -hmm. And then the curiosity came back. You know, and like, how old were you at this point in time? This was, um, I was approaching 30. Because, okay. mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And in order to calm this crazy mind that thought I could control the world by designing, you know, the walls around you, um, I began meditating in order to create some space. And but how did that happen? Did somebody come into your life that well, in the, was a meditator? In the 12-step program, there is the, you know, ah, the step of spiritual. The 12-step. Yes. Yep. yep. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, my spiritual experience was nothing. In you know, my parents uh, went to the American Baptist Church in order to assimilate, you know, mm -hmm. into their Levittown. And, and um, um, I had the uh, chutzpah, so to speak, to... Uh, when they, the pastor asked me whether I wanted to be baptized when I was 13 or 14, um, I said no, because I didn't have a um, resonance with, mm -hmm. with the community. Or, and so when I stopped going to the Baptist church, um, mm -hmm. my parents did too. And I began to realize, oh, they were going for me. Oh, interesting. So... Yeah. So I began to realize the cultural dissonance of this immigrant family. And, and even though my parents wanted me to assimilate, they felt that assimilation was success, a definition right, of, of success, of course. Yep. Um, so, um, so uh, when, I, when I began to create space and the mind began to settle, mm -hmm. um, I also found that I couldn't meditate very well, partially because the meditation centers were just the reflection of, of most of my life being white spaces, um, uh, spaces that impose certain, mm -hmm. you know, rules mm -hmm. or, or, and, and so I actually um, learned in the beginning through books and you know, the experimentation from your own experience that we often give as instructions, that's what I lived through. Um, Interesting. So it wasn't Sangha? Not until um, there, were, there was one particular event that changed it, and that was an LGBTIQ retreat that happened in 1994. And okay. um, I... I don't feel that I was seen completely as a person, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but a portion of me. A part of you. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that was really important because it, one of the things that it showed me is that life did not have to be perfect. You don't have to be completely seen. <laughs> but can you be seen enough? Yeah, enough. To be right. interested. Right, right. To have belonging of some sort. Enough. Yeah. So that I can walk through that door. Right. And then, so, so I'll get, I'll t now I'll go into the micro story of, you know, my mother being at a assisted living facility in Rancho Mirage in the dining room. She's 102. And um, there's a woman uh, who's also in some form of stage of, dementia and day after day um she will not sit with my mother wow and uh educated <laughs> white woman white yes woman. white woman mm -hmm. uh, uh educated mm -hmm. um 
And my mother was still aware enough to notice. And hmm. um, at 102, it's yes. still going on. Uh -huh. And so, and yet in the midst of it, number one, I was there, but also uh, the staff was wonderful. Good. You know, what is good enough yeah. to allow her yeah. to tolerate? Yeah. You know, what is going to be around for a very long time? Yeah. And not be distracted by what uh, is most important. And, and in front of her, it was, you know, her own sense of well-being at that time. She couldn't really, yeah, you know. Um, um, Interesting. Not to dwell too much on sort of pouring gasoline on the fire of other people's problems. Yeah. Well, you know, so, this is interesting, Larry, to hear you. I mean, we've known each other a long time, and it feels like this so much connecting of dots are happening for me right now for, about you. And I'm, I'm thinking about how important it has been for you to create the opportunity for folks, BIPOC folks, for LGBTQI BIPOC folks to enter this realm of mindfulness of the Dharma to impact their lives and then see where it takes them. You have been the biggest champion of anybody that I know, of anybody that I know, of opening the door and all that you have gone through to open up the door, open up the door, open up the door. And I'm hearing your own life as coming from the immigrant family, coming from everything that you're saying right now, that gap you said, you know, that gap of the exterior and then the interior suffering and all of that, and it, it's, I'm, I'm just connecting dots of why this is so important to you. I, let me know if I'm, if I'm on the right track. I mean, why well, has it been so important to you? Because it is, you, this is I, what I, you I do. I, it is what I do, and I don't know if it's, I, I don't want to place that word importance on it. Okay, it, okay. And, and so I'll, I'll describe it differently. Okay. So, you know, I'm just curious about what would it take and I'm going to and I'm going to go where you just went but I'm going okay. to yeah sure uh, you know what would it take for the door to be more open than the one that I went through mm -hmm. you know what would have to change uh, other than you know the large systemic you know right, right. Uh, cultural change which which we do impact but slowly okay. but what what around me can I influence to not just open the door, but to, to reconstruct the architecture, which is what my art background is, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. how do you reconstruct the building so it has mm -hmm. no doors? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, so as I practiced, as I began to practice, uh, you know, more deeply and, and uh, after that, that queer retreat, and luckily you, you, um, we both 
have known and worked with Marlene Jones, who really was the pioneer yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, in many ways of creating BIPOC POC events um, right. in the right. Bay Area. I, you know, um, uh, um, landed in the Diversity Council at Spirit Rock through her um, encouragement. And being seeing the difference, feeling the difference between the BIPOC affinity spaces mm -hmm. and the, the mainstream spaces, um, I was practicing them concurrently mm -hmm. to explore, okay, so th there is a huge difference here. What is that difference? Yeah. And what can be learned from both? Mm -hmm. And as I sat it was the it was the two month retreat the first two month retreat that um, Spirit Rock did in um, I think it was in the year two thousand um, yeah it was um, during that retreat I kept thinking to myself and it was a question it, there was no resentment that I remember from the question but the, because I was the only person of the color. Mm. And I was clearly sitting, I was sitting, Robert Hall, who has since passed away, yeah. has even mentioned this to me, that he remembers me because I sat in the back of the hall because I felt so different from the rest yeah. of the hall. Yeah. And um, I was the, you know, um, it was the one thing that the teachers from the front could notice is, is that I was sitting so far away. Right, right. And I kept thinking um, was not how far I was sitting away, but I was think I was asking the question, what would it take to get a person like me up there? What would it take for the teachers to look or feel or behave in ways that I could relate to more mm -hmm, clearly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And- um, Where your experience could be included. Yes, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and, that, um, and that the stories, which we know are powerful instruments right. of change- Yes. Can, I don't have to do an internal translation. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, it was interesting because I remember, Larry, we were sitting, both of us were at Spirit Rock early, early on. Um, we were sitting in the back of the room. I can't remember what it was. I can't remember what retreat it was. And I remember you saying to me, you had decided to go to Southeast Asia and you were going to go and, 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 and robe and do the whole monk thing. And I turn to you and I thought, wow, you're really taking this stuff seriously. <laughs> and I didn't know where it was for me, you know, but we were there at Spirit Rock and um, you had made that decision. And so now I'm curious when I think about, okay, you as born in the U.S., immigrant family, Asian culture, learning the Dharma from the convert Buddhist perspective then going to Southeast Asia, entrenched in the real culture, I'm wondering how many parts of you, was that more congruent? Did it show the kinds of distances you had and all the different many parts of you to, to be in the Asian culture 
deepening in something that you had learned from convert Buddhism in the U.S. and being Asian yourself. I'm just curious about what that mix must have been like for you. It's, uh, you know, I think... I think that was the product of my increasing awareness of how complex the cultural experience is uh, for all of us. Yes. Um, not just my particular story, but, but I was working with the ingredients of my life and I was realizing, oh, you know, I'm not my parents. Uh, I'm not, I, I, you know, um, they assimilated so much into dominant culture that they gave up all, my mother didn't even believe in acupuncture by the time, you know, mm. she fully assimilated. That's what she had to give up. Wow. So I'm not there, but I'm also not with the Western sanitized mm -hmm. interpretation that has been also colonized to be selective about what teachings to bring and what teachings not to bring from um, the cultures of origin of the Dharma. And that's right. what happens with colonial aspects on anything, whether right. it's religion, science, art, whatever. So, so I did want to go back to the cultures of origin of the tradition and reconnect and see and be curious about, well, what hasn't been shared with us in this continent? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, it, and it's not so much, you know, the academic spiritual texts, mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, they are translated by primarily white scholars. Um, it is the lived experience of having a monastery um, every half block, you know, right. having a temple every half block, having the, having the practice, um, be permeated into a culture mm -hmm. as opposed to a practice that you retreat to outside of your life. Right. And noticing how, um, the the western many western interpretations of the dharma place um diminutive judgments on what asian practice is that oh well that's not really the true practice or that's not the deeper practice that's the community practice um as opposed to what the buddha really meant which mm -hmm. is you know, the deep meditative states in solitude or in isolation. Right. Um, and really trying to explore, so what is the both and? How do you hold multiple truths together without um, uh, putting them in hierarchical, you know, um, right. uh, relationship or... Um, and and what would it be like? Again, going back to that question, what it would be what it would it be like to have the Dharma offered through these different perspectives? And so I never really, you know, um, just going back a little bit to that 
two-month retreat. I never really set out to be a teacher, a Dharma teacher or a meditation teacher. I was just curious, what would it take for me to learn from a different set of people? So that's a... Um, that issue is not a personal issue to me. I, that is a collective issue. How do you create the collective conditions? And nobody could tell me. And, mm. and so I just thought, okay, if nobody could tell me how to get, you know, that change just simply on the, on the front DS, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see if we can try to do it. <laughs> and you know what does it take if nobody can tell me how to do it let's find let's, out let's 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 figure it out ourselves huh and and that's been that was my path for a while so it's this curiosity is so i see why you took the word importance off and said that the, let's reframe it it's just it, you know we just yeah. you know and it wasn't just me it was you know um there were a lot of people that had the same vision and just taking one step at a time and, you know, cascading to a tipping point, you know, and my experience in Asia was included in that because, you know, I really saw a different cultural perspective on mindfulness and Dharma mm -hmm. and, and realized that the Dharma um, can be, very pure and very cultural at the same time. Hmm. And that, you know, the sanitized purity that sometimes is, is discussed is really the Western, the Western. cultural. And right. that's as legitimate as right. another um, uh, interpretation. Right. Um, right. And, and that, there are benefits of the Western mm, conditions that actually can um, manifest the Dharma even further. For example, uh, we have the ability to ma really marry justice and, you know, um, the dismantling of patriarchy, which is very much tied into Asian cultures of origin and um, the misogyny and mm -hmm. and um, bringing in the intersectionality of our identities. Right. Um, that is, I think, one of the um, um, uh, exciting places that that mindfulness and the Dharma can go from where we are. Uh, in this Western culture. Um, and um, over the last two decades, the the drops in the bucket have created this tipping point. And you know there are there are more diverse, especially BIPOC spiritual leaders and teachers than ever before. And well, and that's again, I that's true. And and you're being, I think you're being really modest. And yes, there's a lot of people and there's a lot of reasons why. And I have to say that, Larry, what you have created, like I started by saying you're impacting me and how I'm sitting here because of that, because of you. 
um, also Marlene Jones, of course. And um, that what I, what I want to let folks know is that I and 19 others just have graduated from a teacher training, a Dharma teacher training uh, from Spirit Rock that Larry and, and um, Gina Sharp and Leela Wheeler pulled together to train 20 out of, out of 20 or 19 of us were BIPOC um, and our 18 of us were BIPOC. Um, and these teachers are now, we're all out in the world. We've been teaching for a while, but, um, and then because of that, another group at, on the other side of, of the country was also developed with another 20 some teachers. And so what I have to say is that your vision and your curiosity to answer that question, what would it be like, um, led, has led to this swell, this drop, 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 starting with the, going back to East Bay Meditation Center, mm. you know, East Bay Meditation Center kind of creating out of the spirit rock, what would it be like if we had our own center that was in the East Bay, close to the ground of the people, by the people, for the people, anyone can come. You were instrumental in making that happen as well. So I just want to say that, you know, um, your curiosity of that question has so positively impacted so many of us. And, and I think I, I, I think if I can I can interrupt you. Sure. Um, I think that question has helped me not burn out. Mm. Because because I have been in the place, especially as an activist or a social worker or, or a community organizer, of really wanting an outcome. Mm -hmm. And when that doesn't happen, based yeah. on, you yeah. know, you know, yeah. like yeah. what we can see in American politics, you keep, you keep, you know, um, smashing your head into the brick wall. Yeah. And the question itself is like a river, you know, um, rushing over rocks that it, it has its power. It may not be immediate, um, but what would it be like? What, what inspires me and what would it be like to take a step in that direction? I have had the privilege that's why I have so many like different, you know, like, um, I don't know, job things in my CV that uh, I have had the privilege of just following my curiosity and following. And when that curiosity ends, that's when I am no longer meant to be doing that particular activity. Yeah. And, you know, the universe has taken care of me because my interests have supported me. And, um, and I think partially it's because my interest has not been about me. It has been about, mm -hmm. about what can support us. And by, by supporting us, I support me. Yeah. And so one of the things that um, I think about often, and this is where my father is with me all the time, because he was... He was a teacher in a classic Asian 
subject of electrical engineering, that his students 40 years later would still be in touch and send him Christmas mm. presents or whatever. So, um, and he always said to me, and I never felt this until my adulthood, that the, um, the measure of a good teacher, a great teacher, is how much their students supersede the teacher. And I have come to really appreciate his um, ability to be humble and yet continually to do things in what he believes. Um, yeah. Uh, Larry, and that's a high bar for all of us. And that That's is a high bar for all of us to supersede where you have gone, how you, the Dharma lives in you. That's a really high bar. That is the bar that will propel us to the next seven generations. Right. You know, the teacher cannot be the glass ceiling. Right, right. And I have so much energy and joy and ebullience that all of you will create a better world. And, um, yeah. you know, that's what keeps me going. It's so interesting. And that's why I'm yeah. working even more than I used to. Because <laughs> I know. I, you're supposed to be retired, right? I know. <laughs> it's like you're at this point, at this moment, you are a retired Dharma teacher, but not really. You know, I, I think about all of us who have um, come through um, the Dharma door that you have so beautifully opened. And I can only hope, and, and it's such a variety of, of, it's like a bouquet of, of different flowers. Everybody's doing what they do in different ways. It's really so wonderful to watch us, actually. And, um, but it is a high bar. And, um, and we we all just honor you so much, Larry. And I know that's not the point, but that is what happens when you have a teacher that you really love and respect that's been so profoundly impactful. You honor them. And you have are so honored by us and by so many others. And so I just want to say that um, I'm grateful, deeply, deeply grateful to be a part of of a movement, because it feels to me like this is a movement, to be a part of a movement of BIPOC teachers in the Dharma who are impacting the world in so many different ways and that have come out of this small door, really started at Spirit Rock that then has spread to the different places that it has and um, and to be a part of your world and and, and what you have given to to the Dharma. I, I'm just so blessed to be a part of that. And I do feel that we have a big a, 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 we have a, a big picture. We have a, a huge rock to roll up a hill still. And I see people doing it. I do see us doing it. And you have given, and you and Gina Sharp and Leela and all the other teachers have really given us the tools 
you've given us the tools. And I'm just really, really grateful for that. And I want to ask you one last question, and this is kind of off on topic, but I'm curious, as I started, we talked about that you are now one of the things that you have done in your retirement is that you work um, with the Katali Foundation. And I'm so curious how working in philanthropy in that in that foundation intersects with the Dharma, if you can explain that. And how does that, how does it work for you? How is that, how did you say yes to that, that it works for your own curiosity? How does that work, working there at Katali Foundation? Um, on a on an energetic level, you know, as I was winding down my involvement in Dharma communities, I was clearing clearing the table, to, and I was clearing the table not to know what I was going to do next because you know I wasn't going to be um, immobile or passive in this life, but I didn't have a clear idea of I need to do this. Um, and I was looking for something to be interested in. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this is how the cycles seem to have arisen and, and, and have closure in my life. When, when, um, there's an ending of a cycle, like, uh, like the teacher training and, and what you were referring to, um, as opposed to holding on to it, mm -hmm. And letting go is not easy. Letting go um, uh, means letting go of pleasant experiences, and we know that 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 authority and power and and um, uh, the ability to do something is pleasant. Um, as I cleared the table, um, this opportunity with a with a new uh, grant-making organization, Katali, that was formed um, uh, just in the last two years, really, and um, had a program area around mindfulness and healing justice specifically directed towards diverse BIPOC communities. And so on paper, it just felt like a good fit. But more important than that, more important than even the, the articulation of the vision was the people involved, the, um, the values that were part of this emerging organization um, were clearly not just well thought out in terms of intellectual, but that these people had lived that experience for a while in order to bring the values into this, into this uh, new organization. Mm -hmm. And that as opposed, and, and many of, many of the folks who are social activists, including you know what it's like to push, to, yeah. to stretch the envelope, to, to um, advocate, to have a more neutral word, to to challenge, to speak truth to power, to do all of those things. What is it like in the abundance of not having to do that because it's already been done for you? 
that is what was stunning to me. Yeah. That, that, um, that power was humble. Therefore, mm. it was easy to speak to. Mm. That, that our thoughts together were not just well-received, but they were intimately respected. That there was no second guessing of, well, what if X, Y, Z? Right, right. Almost unimaginable, Larry. And that confidence, mm -hmm. that experiential confidence, mm -hmm. gives you faith yeah. that this is the right direction. And, you know, um, one example of this... Um, this spaciousness as well as not having to advocate and yet having um, the needs met. Uh, it, one of the examples is, is that they, they created, without any advocacy, this fund to uh, resp uh, do a rapid response against the anti-Asian violence that's happening. Mm -hmm. And that it was presented to the program advisors to execute but there was, it, it emerged out of an organic, of course, of course. we're going to do this. Yeah. And so um, that development of faith in the, both the view and the actions that create the transformation that is needed in this world, mm -hmm. this is where I feel that, it is part of my spiritual practice, but it is part of a, of a very deep ethical and um, uh, integrity practice that um, this organization is, is, is engendering. And, um, and so we're meant uh, to support not just transferring wealth, which is a typical goal of philanthropy just and for many reasons you know to um to get a good tax deduction or to uh alleviate uh you know the the guilt of disparity and wealth it is not just um transferring wealth in terms of resources it is also meant to transfer what wealth means in this in this country which is power power and the ability to live exactly as we are meant to live mm. and not be imposed on or controlled or um, determined mm -hmm. by narrow dominant cultural views or, yeah. and, um, and that is something pretty special. And, and I hope it. Special. I hope it ripples. I hope it ripples, and I yeah. hope it. I hope it um, affects other philanthropic efforts. Yeah, you all are leading the field right now, without a doubt. And we, I had the pleasure of having Amaka Agbo, who is the CEO, mm -hmm. on the Brown Rice Hour as well recently, and uh, she is just phenomenal. And if you haven't seen that, um, those of you out there listening, if you haven't seen that episode. Um, please do with Amaka Agbo, just brilliant, who is the CEO of uh, Katali Foundation. And 
what you all are doing is, um, and in the mindfulness space, I mean, to mix the philanthropy and the mindfulness is just, it's, I've never seen it before. I've never seen it done so ethically. I've never seen it done so brilliantly, like you said, so well thought out, so um, integrated and really um, you're leading the curve. And I'm hoping that other organizations and foundations and family offices will um, will follow and look at you all and in the leadership role that you're taking. You know, Larry, this has been wonderful to have this conversation with you. I am so grateful that you said yes to. Oh, I was nervous. I was totally nervous. I know. I was like, why are you nervous? We go back like, you know, hundreds of years, (laughs) lifetimes even. But I'll tell you, I'll tell the audience, the reason I really said yes is because I get to talk to you so infrequently. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) If I have to do it in public, I will. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Touche. I got that. I got that. More conversation between us. And it doesn't have to be public. (laughs) Okay. Larry, thank you so much for joining. Mm. Thank Thanks you so for much. having me. Yeah, this has absolutely. been a lot of fun. Thank you Good. for Good. you know. Thank you for um, supporting all the work that I've done. So thank you for supporting me as a person, and you know what I what I really experience from you, Conda, mm. is a lot of love. So that's what I thank you for. Oh. Well, thank you, Larry. That's so sweet. That's the kindest thing ever. I um, yeah, and that's what I feel from you as well. That's what you give to me, and you have from day one. So, <sighs> this is good. Good to see you. Yeah, you take good care. I love you. Love you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.